Welcome to Living Waters Podcast. Whether you're a lifelong believer, someone seeking spiritual nourishment, or simply curious about the teachings of Christ, this podcast is for you. Thank you for listening and being part of our family. We're in Luke chapter 5. I want to invite you to open up in your own Bibles if you have them here. If you don't, don't worry. It will be on the screen. Um, we're going to be reading the whole chapter 5. Um, as you know by now, we're busy going through the entire book of Luke. Um, and the last, this is, this is week four. The last three weeks has been incredibly good. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I really have. And, and we're going through, now I know we can't, we can't touch everything that's in there. I acknowledge that there's just too much. But I'm praying that through this series, God will give us a hunger for his word. For a, a reading, not just of a single verse, but, but to find the value of, of these incredible accounts of, of Jesus and these incredible letters that, that Paul and others wrote us. But while we're in Luke, as, as we're going to read it now, but I just want to say, you know, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1, um, 2, 4, Luke introduces why he's writing this book. And he's saying, I, I researched everything that's going on. I researched everything you've heard. This is the truth. And I want to make sure you know this. He's writing to Theophilus and he says, so that you might know with certainty the things you have been taught. And that's really my prayer is as we go through this, that, that God would lay a foundation of the gospel in our hearts again. A foundation of who Jesus is and the salvation that we have in him. It is Christ first. And that's my prayer for us. Let's read Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put, uh, sorry, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Then Simon Peter saw this. When Simon Peter saw this, rather, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. And while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered in leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face down to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, go tell everyone, uh, sorry, don't tell anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. 
But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to land before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, your friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately you stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do and the disciples, excuse me, of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the friends of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece of, out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn a new garment and the patch from the old one, from, from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the, of the wines, and the wineskins, apologies, will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that, that we have this incredible privilege to come together in your house today to learn from you and to worship you and to pray and to glorify you, Lord. We, we don't come and, and have a church event. No, we come and set time apart for our God. And I pray this morning that we might be built up and instructed, encouraged, and maybe even corrected as we humbly submit to your word. Thank you for this privilege. Amen. Amen. So uh, we know by now that throughout the whole book of Luke, what he's doing is he is establishing Jesus as the Messiah who has come to save all, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, I think Luke had a bit of a focus on that because Luke himself was no Jew. So uh, let's be honest. So I think it was close to home for him, this theme that Jesus didn't just come for, for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And throughout this whole book, we've seen that theme come up again and again, and it's going to come up more and more. But the first section we're going to 
to be dealing with today is that section from verses 1 to verses 11 where Jesus calls his first disciples. Now this for me is, I'll be honest, I have preached entire messages on these couple of verses. I can do a series on this one. I really can. It's close to home, but I want to just sketch out the main idea of this section here is that being a disciple of Jesus means recognizing your own unworthiness. That's, that's first here. Being a disciple of Jesus means recognizing your own unworthiness before a sovereign God. It means to have a willingness to leave all and follow Him. But it also means that disciples must recruit disciples. And these three things you cannot take away from, from, from this idea of what it means to be a disciple. When we say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, by the way, we, we call that Christian. Um, when you say that, you assume these three things. You assume, number one, we, we see the preeminence of God in absolutely everything. He is over everything. He is better. He is bigger. That is just a fact that we have to deal with. That's the starting point. And because we know who He is, we willingly and humbly submit to Him. And from there, there is no such thing as a disciple who don't make disciples. This is part of the key themes that's going to come just in this section. And, and I actually have bullet points here for key themes in this section. I told you there's so much here. Um, Jesus' ministry, we see here, will not be exercised alone. He's going to do it with people and then entrust it to people. Because Jesus' ministry, even today, should never be exercised alone. It doesn't work. It's not a system that Jesus put in place. He ordained the church. Jesus' disciples, you will notice, were ordinary people. And being fishermen, it gave just the perfect example. The first guy's called fishermen. He's like, now go fish, but for people. It was just very strategic how he did that. But he used that that fisherman analogy to, to call the recruitment of more disciples. And we also see that, that Jesus' power does evoke a, a kind of unworthiness that is healthy for our hearts. Because while Jesus calls us co-laborers, we are by no means on the same level. Is that okay to say? He calls us co-laborers and He says, I'm going to anoint you with the Holy Spirit, but, but by no means... Am I a sinless God as Jesus were, is? Sorry. And this unworthiness is actually the best place to be because it's in humility that God gives grace, it's in pride that God resists us. It's one of the scariest scriptures in the Bible for me. God resists the proud. Isn't that one? Is it just me? Whenever I read that, my heart sinks and I'm like, Lord, I feel like I, should, I can do, get away with a lot. But pride, pride is not going to help me. Because there is never in my life a time where I want to be at a place where God resists me, opposes the proud. Not a chance. We also see that following Jesus means leaving everything behind. But until now, Jesus has uh, 
been working alone. And now all of a sudden, Luke fills us in on, on how he's busy recruiting his closest disciples, those who will accompany him in his ministry. Um, they will be there till his end, and then they'll make a couple of foolish decisions for a weekend, run away as soon as Jesus wasn't there. But, but their recommitment is awesome. Okay, we'll get there. Their recommitment is just phenomenal. And it's on these guys that, that Jesus actually leaves the responsibility of planting the early church. It's just absolutely incredible that these ordinary people, there's, there's nothing exceptional about these first disciples at all, but they will eventually become the very stones with which Jesus plans to build the church. Him is the cornerstone, but then living stones. And these guys were the first guys. It's just absolutely incredible for me. But we also see that, that Jesus is now calling disciples to follow him. Now, that's nothing new. In those times, rabbis called disciples all the time. That was how it worked. But Jesus wasn't a rabbi. That was, that was one of the issues here. The rabbis were learned people that, you know, they went through the ranks. That they, and all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, young man, probably about 30 years old, you know, and all of a sudden he goes, okay, I am claiming my teaching as authoritative and I'm calling someone to follow me. It's just absolutely phenomenal how he sets up his authority, declaring his purpose to teach something new. So we go on here and we see that this, this first of three, by the way, so-called nature miracles that we see in Jesus' ministry, because the, the subject of the miracle of the fish is not the people, it's, it's nature. And this is a very interesting thing because um, it obviously reveals God's glory. But with all nature miracles in the gospel, we don't actually have an explanation. There's no attempt to explain how it happened. All it does is it shows Jesus' authority over it. All it does is it shows that, that Jesus' authority, you know, some might argue, I've got no, no issue with that, but some might argue insight is far beyond human abilities. Jesus can control or oversee, foresee nature in a way that no human being can. For me, this is awesome because when we think of the creation account, when we think of God's ability over or authority over nature, we now see that Jesus is, is claiming that same supernatural authority. And that supernatural authority brings Simon to his knees. That supernatural authority of Jesus, you command nature makes Simon fall before Jesus on his knees. And, and this miracle, though, is, is not the main point of the story. The main focus of, of this section is about discipleship. Jesus' authority compels them, but the focus is discipleship. And in that, two things that we absolutely have to mention is the, the immediate and unconditional response that discipleship takes. The immediate an unconditional response that discipleship takes. When we see how Simon goes and, and falls before Jesus, there's no point in that, in that moment where we question his loyalty. In fact, with the revelation of who Jesus is, Simon was willing to leave all behind and follow him. I know that's a challenge. And some of you are getting worried because you know there's an application moment coming in just a second. What is I'm saying this morning? But we cannot deny that the revelation of who Jesus is should have a profound effect on how we think and do. We should have a profound, it should have a profound effect on who we are. 
And the second thing we have to notice is, as I said, disciples win disciples. Becoming fishermen is not a side issue. It is part of the call of following Jesus, is the recruitment of others. So let's talk about the takeaways in just a moment. Um, now, we have to consider Peter. Peter was a normal guy. He was a fisherman. He, he wasn't the most trained guy. I'm sure he didn't know, you know, he, he wasn't, a, didn't have a PhD in theology. He, he didn't, wasn't a, a professional apologist or anything like that. This oak smelled like fish. Is that okay? He smelled like fish. He was faithful, but he was a fishy guy. <laughs> And then we have, on the other hand, you know, later in the Bible, we won't get to it in Luke, obviously, but we have someone like Paul, who was the most equipped person on earth. He was sinless, according to the Jewish laws. He, I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was trained in the, in the Hebrew culture, actually as well in Greek, because he was a Roman by birth. He literally, he was the epitome of what God could use at that time. Only problem is he was killing the Christians. So that was, um, but what I see here, what I see here is that we must be careful to make either of those distinctions saying God equips the called or he calls the equipped. God calls whoever he wants. But God uses imperfect people for His perfect purpose. And I don't want any of us ever to be in a place where we think, if only I, then I could. If God could use both Peter and Paul to very, I don't know, they didn't get along so well, actually. We see that, we see that later. They loved each other, but it didn't always go so well between them. Read Acts if you want to know more about that. It's a very interesting story. But God used both because they had different influences that they had to exercise on earth. If God made everyone like Paul that he wanted to choose, he could only influence those who Paul could influence. But praise God he did it. He made Heinz. He made, oh, I must be careful not to point to too many people. He made you guys. <laughs> because he wants to use imperfect people for his perfect purpose. And we know Luke is writing that his perfect purpose is to solve the problem of sin. And to call his people back to him. No, you're not beyond God's grace. And you're definitely not beyond His use. The question is, will you become a disciple? They did not respond because they, they knew how little or how much it would cost them. They didn't respond how much because they, they knew, oh, I'm going to get so much out of this. They responded because they knew who Jesus was. And the person of Jesus is the same person we're responding to today. Their response then was total commitment in their lives. Listen, I'm by no means saying quit your job. I'm saying God wants to use your position. Let me just get that straight. I'm saying there where you are, He has purpose. I want to move on. 
because, uh, because there's a lot to cover still, but we now get to these two incredible, memorable healings. Now, now this is also interesting because all of a sudden, you know, Luke moves away from many were healed, and he, he tells in quite a bit of detail two specific healings, which is an incredible shift from kind of how we was framing the ministry. And now there was obviously um, the woman who had a fever, and he rebuked the fever, but now he's moving to a very, very specific uh, healings. And it's important because the main idea of this section is that Jesus not only brings physical healing, but also social restoration, spiritual liberation and the forgiveness of sins. This is all going to come in this moment because now this section is incredible. I, I love that it still adds that his ministry was thriving and people were following and he still made time to go to God in prayer. It says he withdrew often to lonely places to pray. And there's a couple of times that, that, that we hear that, that we see that. And I believe, listen, we all need some of that. But there's no time for that today. But in this incredible moment, he, he looks past the outside. In both these healings, he looks past the physical momentary needs and he sees something deeper, more significant in these people. He sees past what everyone else sees, what everyone else judges, what everyone else convicted, and he sees something greater. And there's where we get to this incredible moment. We also see an increase in his opposition. Now, we've now seen that he's, uh, you know, he's, they were angry at him because they said, no, he's including the Gentiles. Now we're going to move to blasphemy. Now we're going to move to the first time that the, the religious leaders of the day started calling him out for blasphemy. And we know where this is going to end, unfortunately. And fortunately. But we see this opposition starting to take place. And, and Luke writes in this section, and it's, it's quite incredible, the first one is we have to touch on the guy with leprosy. Now, even though leprosy in, that, in, in the Bible referred to many ailments, skin ailments, okay, so it wasn't just what we know as leprosy today, it was, the, the word was used for many skin ailments. It was considered an unhealable disease. And that's why these people would be ostracized from communities, from, from their religious meetings, from their families. They would literally be chased out of town to go live together and, and go die out there with, with, with you sick people. So this is what Jesus is walking into. This man that he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have, hasn't have a head headache for, for a couple of weeks. This oak has been forced out of his community alone among sick people. And every time someone would come close to them in those times when they're out of town, they would have to shout, unclean, 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 so that people don't go to them. And as Jesus comes, you know, this man falls before Jesus on his, on his, on his knees and he says, Lord, if you are willing, would you clean me? And what we see here is, is just incredible because rather than Jesus just saying, you are clean, which we know he has the authority to do, I mean, he could have... He could have blown in his direction and blown the spots of whatever was on his skin. He could have done that. But we see Jesus do something very interesting and very significant. Jesus reaches out and he touches him. He touches a man that has not been touched in, in we don't know how long. That is not allowed close to his family or to give his wife or his kids a hug or, or anyone close to him. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks past. Sure, he's got some spots on his skin, but, but this man needs a touch. Sure, he's got some, some issues. And he says, I'm willing. And at that moment, 
leprosy leaves him and he's cleaned and he's healed and he says, don't tell anyone, but, but go tell people. So anyway, so he goes to, to the religious leaders because that was the case. That's what they had to do because they believed it was completely incurable. The only way to cure it was divine intervention. In saying that, Jesus was doing two very significant things. Number one, he's saying, go and be reinstated in your community. Because as soon as they see you're clean, you're back with your family. You're back with your friends. You're back in your community. You can go back to church. He reinstates this man's social position, which is just incredible because he cares for the guy. But it also is a claim to his divinity. Because if only divine intervention could heal the man, what he's saying, go show my divinity. And in here, obviously, we see that God has has this, or Jesus rather, has this incredible authority to forgive sin, but, but he has far more than that. But up until now, he has not been, you know, front with his ability to forgive sin. Because the moment he claimed that, that's when the accusations of blasphemy came, because only God can forgive sins. But rather than shy away from opposition, he doubles down. I love that. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from the opposition. The moment... There they start questioning, but, but wait, 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 wait. Who do you think you are to forgive sins? You don't, what, what's going on here? Now, we must notice that that man was obviously a sinner and Jesus cared for his soul more than what he cared for his physical nature at that moment. But when they started opposing him because of it, what Jesus did is, I'm going to prove to you today that I have the authority. And the miracle of making him stand up and walk makes everyone go, wait a second, he is God. Because he gives them a visible representation of the inward change. And for me, that's just absolutely incredible because Jesus' ability to, to forgive sins, man, let me tell you, that is, that is my number one thing in life. Let's be honest. That is, that is pretty important. But, but Jesus being able to do so much more than that and, and to back up these claims and, and to give us hope, to give us peace. That's how he affirms his authority in our lives today as well. And I want to take away for this part, you know, and, and what we see here when we consider leprosy and, and this the social re religious situation the man was in, it, it is quite significant because Jesus' willingness to touch someone should be an example for us. Now, please, I'm not saying go to spar and touch people on the head or something like that. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying how often do we actually have an opportunity to touch lives around us? A few weeks ago, my family and I were in, in food lovers market um, because my son seems to be a vegetarian. But I know, pray for us. Um, but we're walking, but, but now... For those who's not yet parents, bless you. For those who are parents and has, has endured toddlers, later on in the day, it's like we're talking three, four o'clock in the afternoon after a day of doing, we had to go visit people on that side and, and shopping. So by that time, everyone is done. All right? Is this okay? You guys are so holy. You're like, I oh, know, I never get tired. I'm just... I'm not saying I was out of grace for my children. I'm just saying I was tired. 
and, and I remember now I'm walking around there and I'm, I'm pushing my little trolley around there and I'm trying to see what we need and yo, we need strawberries, you know, blueberries for room, you know, and uh, um, not that bad. But, but I definitely did, wasn't, you know, my, my normal chirpy self. But I remember coming around into one of the aisles with my trolley, and I almost bumped into one of the, the guys working there who was, was stacking some fruit there, and he was coming with his speed, and, and I'm like, oh, man, shame. You know, this is probably also tired, and I smiled, and I'm like, oh, sorry about that, you know, cracking a bit of a joke to make sure that no one's angry at each other. And while I'm smiling at him, I, I just like, I, I look past him, and there's another man, an Indian guy, remember? And I just smiled, and I'm like, hello, hello, just acknowledging his existence. And I remember, as soon as they were gone, you, you know that feeling where the smile literally just falls off your face? Oh, you guys are so holy. Where you literally, you just greet them, and it goes, Ugh. you know, no one can see me now. Ugh. That's hind after Sunday service. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> when I get home, Ugh. But I remember that feeling of like almost my jaw just getting like slack, like, Ugh. And I go on, I was in the wrong aisle, um, so I was like, I don't need anything here. So I come back and I, I go out and, and I walk about three or four paces and I feel a tap on my shoulder. And I look around and it's, it's the Indian gentleman. And he says, I just have to tell you, I've been having such a tough time. I've, I've, I've been so hopeless. I've been struggling. And the way you smiled at me today just restored joy in my heart. Now I'm, I'm blown away. I don't know what to do, you know. So, no, there was no moment of, now let's get on your knees and pray for you right now. But that day, God used me to touch a man's life with a smile. Sometimes that's all it takes, man. We live in such a broken world where, where people are so so hungry for hope that a smile, a smile made this man's day in such a way that he had to come and tell me about it. Who goes up to a stranger and thanks them for a smile? That's weird. But I wonder how many opportunities like that we have every day to look past the, the ugly, the sin, The suffering. And just to take a moment and ask, what is it that they need? I want to finish up with the last, the last section for today. And it's, it's um, feasting and fasting. It's this last section that we see. I've turned to the wrong place. And, and it's this context now of where we are in, in the book of Luke. We start seeing the opposition increasing. But the big idea is the joyful inclusiveness of Jesus' ministry contrasts the joyless ritual of dead religion. There's a major contrast in serving Jesus and religion. So Jesus' controversy with the scribes, it, it's um, being accused of blasphemy thus far is, is being now further and further developed. And in these two scenes where obviously there's the, um, where he, I'm in the wrong place again, but when he calls uh, Levi as well as when they, he's questioned about fasting, we see him mixing with, with sinners. Now, now this was a major issue with the normal situation where rabbis would go. 
how the religious folk would con conduct themselves, you know, because there, there was a standard, you know, that you had to uphold, uh, uphold. And here, all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples is doing something a, a little bit different, and he's criticized for it, and, and incredibly so. But in, his, in this mission, in his impression that he's giving is that, again, Luke brings out the fact that Jesus didn't come for the righteous. And the words he uses specifically, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this is, I cannot tell you how, how incredibly important this, this moment is. And we're going to see that again about twice, you know, especially a later chapter where he says a specific thing that we all know so well. But this call of Christ to call sinners to repentance is at the heart of his message. It's at the heart of what he came to do. And, and uh, this almost ironic mention of the righteous is interesting. And it warns us that, that repentance does not come easily to those who already consider themselves righteous. It warns us that, that even today that Jesus didn't come for us to think ourselves righteous. I don't know how to burst your bubble, but... We're only going to reach perfection one day in heaven. On earth we strive for it. But there is no such thing as sinless perfection outside of God in our temporary world. It doesn't exist. And when we think ourselves righteous, our ability to repent becomes less and less and less. And what we're doing is the pride goes up and up and up. And we set ourselves in a position that God has to oppose us because of who we think we are. This is a, a grave, grave warning for us. And we must recognize also, you know, he uses that analogy of the wineskins, the old and the new wineskins, which is, uh, and the old and the new cloth. But I want to talk about the wineskins for a moment because it's interesting for me that he lands on. And once you have gotten used to the taste of the old, you wouldn't want the new. You will say the old is better. Now, Jesus was not making an argument for aging wine. I just want to say that. Jesus was saying, the more religiously caught up you are, the more difficult it's going to be for you to accept the message of peace and grace in Jesus Christ. The harder you've become, the more difficult it is going to be for you to accept with grace those coming into the kingdom. And this is a very important thing because this, what Jesus is saying, listen, and I just want to, want to say, I'm, for a long time in the church there was a buzzword called legalism. And anyone that wants to be obedient to Jesus is called legalistic. Jesus by no means is saying you must not be obedient to his call. The difference between legalism and obedience is the heart. But on the outside, it looks the same. It looks the same. But where the big difference comes in is we don't believe that obedience can save us. Only Jesus can do that. And obedience comes from a place of joy in serving Jesus. 
When we recognize this Jesus who has authority over nature as Peter did, we fall down on our knees and it becomes our joy to be obedient to Him. To say, God, have everything in us. But see, in this, Jesus was obviously talking about the religious structures of Judaism, especially Pharisaical Judaism, and, and how they clung to those ideas. And he's saying, this cannot contain the gospel I'm preaching now. But the reality of the matter is we can turn the freedom of the gospel back into old, dead wineskins. Now, please hear me out. I'm not talking about old and new songs. I'm not talking about anything like that. That is a misappropriation of Scripture. But there is a warning for us here. Are there things in our lives, in our relationship with God that was once joyful, that has become religion? Are there things in our lives that, that we looked forward to at a time that has now become ritualistic in doing? Even things like going to church, I'm sure, you know, um, not you guys, but the people who's not here this morning. Um, but there was a time when, when you thought, oh, we, can get, we get to go to church and, and it's going to be good. We're going to worship and, and Hines going to preach. And it's going to be good. And we're going to have a cup of coffee. And we're going to talk with each other. And, and then, you know, over time we go, we'll see. Maybe we've, well, we'll see if we can make it. You know, we just, you know, we're quite busy at the moment, you know. And then you start, and I'm sorry if this, if this is too close to home, but then you start, yeah, but I've had such a busy week. I just want some time for myself, you know. And those things that once brought us joy, refreshment upliftment becomes stale and dry. And I, I want, I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to lay on you here that, you know, if you don't come to church, you're going to hell. <laughs> I'm asking, how is your relationship with Jesus doing? Are you still experiencing the joy of your salvation before the Lord? Are you still going to Christ with, with gratitude and saying, Jesus, I'm blown away by your mercy. When you read these incredible accounts of his life and you see these things and, and it's almost as if we're invited into to see firsthand because this is an eyewitness account that we're reading here and, and we see Jesus reaching out. Are we still blown away by who he is? Or should we ask the Holy Spirit to come and soften us again so that we will once again be blown away? by who he is. The thing is, guys, dead religion cannot save you. And I think even just as dangerous as, as that is, dead religion will not bring you joy. And you might believe in Jesus and your name written down in the book of life and go through your entire life so sour that people don't want you smiling at them in food lovers market. If people start, you know, Ooh, yes, Hein is here. Let's just, um, let's slip that way quickly, you know. Don't look around now. Especially husbands and wives, don't look at each other now. That you've become a person that people love to avoid. Or is the joy of our salvation still so, so fresh in our hearts that people want to be around us? That our very presence makes a difference wherever we go. Because I want to encourage you, if you're not there, get back there. 
That's an exciting place to be. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time in His Word. Pray. Spend time in worship. Spend time with other Christians. Ask questions. Because outside of, of Jesus, I'm going to tell you, this life is, is pretty dull and dreary. But Jesus is the hope that we have that makes any storm we might face in this life bearable. I want to pray for you and um, I especially want to pray for you this morning if you feel like, uh, like you're, you're not in the new wineskin place anymore. Because Lord, we, we are so privileged to be able to read this book and to go through these accounts one after the other and to see how you love and made a difference and how you went beyond just the status quo and you saw beyond people's exterior or physical needs and, and you did so much more. And Lord, we recognize that there are parts of our relationship with you that's gone stale. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and renew the joy of our salvation. Jesus, when your disciples went out, they came back rejoicing because demons listened and you said, no, 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 no. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Because true joy is found in our salvation in you. Today, Lord, like the disciples, as Peter saw what you were able to do, we recognize, Jesus, who you are. And we too, Lord, recognize our unworthiness. And we appreciate, God, that you want to use imperfect people for your perfect purpose. So today we recommit ourselves as disciples, acknowledging who you are, committing to, to laying down our, our thoughts, our mindsets, our ideologies, our preconceived ideas before you and say, God, come and have your way. We repent of our way of thinking. But Lord, what we also want to do is we want to commit to making disciples, to becoming fishers. So help us, Jesus, to have an influence on those around us to touch lives wherever we might go. In Jesus' name, amen.